I'm Helen Marshall, and this is the Diary of a CLO. I hope no one's listening, but if you are, definitely share it. In this episode, I'm joined by Anna Maria Dorgo, an L&D practitioner with a community-first attitude. As founder of L&D Shakers and head of community at Butter, Anna Maria epitomises giving back to the circles in which she operates. We uncover the thinking behind the communities, why it's important now more than ever to share openly with them, as well as some of the best practices for anyone wanting to set up a learning community themselves. Enjoy. Anna Maria, hi and welcome to Diary of a CLO. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? Hey Helen, I am doing great. Very excited to chat with you today. How are you? Yeah, good. Yeah, good. I'm really glad that you're here and I think many people will know you as the founder of L&D Shakers, which for those who don't know is an international community for L&D professionals to meet, share, learn and accelerate their careers. I've taken that off your website. So if you want to dig into it in more detail, then obviously we will get into that as well. But tell me, how did it all start? Did you always know that you wanted to be a community creator? What's your background? No, I did not. I guess I was very early on drawn to, let's call, alternative ways of learning, which usually, by alternative, I mean everything that's not the typical school, university setting, sage on the stage, and it kind of involves us all being part of and shaping our learning journey and having fun with it. So I think I was drawn to that always through my work with NGOs and student organizations and congresses and summer schools and all that. And I always found those spaces very inspiring and uplifting and energizing. And I always return with a great boost of confidence, but I did not plan to become a community builder. I had no idea really that such a thing exists. I really didn't know much about communities. My understanding of community was meetups, like the app where you would kind of create a whatever, a meetup, and some people would, would join you like offline, definitely not online. My background is human resources. I studied psychology, have a master in human resources and organizational health. I've been working as an HR business partner for a couple of years before pivoting to learning and development, which I absolutely love. Everything that has to do with growth, uh, setting goals, developing, pushing our comfort zone further and further away and, and all that good stuff. And it was, I think I was about eight months in my learning and development role. And I was a one person department in a Dutch startup. And so at the beginning, I was like, oh, trying everything I knew and like testing it out. And it was a great environment to do just that with a top manager but then after again like I it was about eight months in the role I thought like oh, I really I'm so curious to know what other L&Ds are doing in other companies and how they tackle these challenges so that's kind of how it all started my dream back then was to connect and connect with five maybe seven people and build this kind of working group we were calling it back then to meet once a month it's in one of our offices with our laptops around the table and talk about our work so i just wanted i basically outsourced my team if you want to (laughs) the team i didn't have did you see that with obviously as the community has grown did it start off with that kind of collective of individuals who were similar to you in that they were part of like one person or very kind of limited resource teams is that was that 
across the board? That was my idea. But actually, at the very first L&D Shakers meetup, we weren't even calling us. We didn't have a name. We weren't calling ourselves anything. But it was just an informal lunch with a bunch of strangers that I approached over LinkedIn. And majority of us were working in um, either just alone, like a standalone department, or with an intern, for example, like it's really small team. There was one person that was coming from a very big corporate and it was funny because we were like, you know, going around the table. What are you working on and what are your challenges and what's your budget? And it was like, everyone was pretty much aligned until we reached her. And she's like, well, I don't have a problem with the budget. <laughs> and my challenges are these and that, which were like totally different than ours. But it was great to see like, oh, yeah, so that's it's L&D, but it's a different context. And so they're struggling with something else, but still hearing her challenges, it, they weren't that foreign. It was probably not very relevant to me, but they weren't foreign. Hmm. So that first meeting was obviously face-to-face, and that was the idea for the group originally was to, to make that connection, create the working group, as you said. But how has it evolved and what does it look like now? So that was... 2019, end of the year, 2019, we started meeting and we did the first meeting. We kind of end up that first lunch meeting with trying to pencil in a bit. What is this working group? So how often do we meet once a month? Okay, where do we meet? In one of our offices, we rotate a month in uh, my company, a month in yours and so on. And then what do we talk about? What should we do when we meet? And we kind of landed off on two formats. The first format was to bring a challenge and tap into our collective brains for solutions. The second format was kind of like a deep dive into a topic that we assume everyone works on. For example, onboarding, I'm sure that, you know, it keeps us busy. Leadership, I'm so sure we all have some sort of shape or form we have to see with that topic. And then it was truly like we would research and prepare and then come together to share our findings. So that, those were the formats. And we started like that. So I think before COVID came, we met offline about maybe three or four times. And every single time the group was getting bigger because someone was bringing their colleague and I had a chat with someone else and they also want to join because they, they thought it's cool and so on. And then COVID came and I think we were about the second or the third week in the quarantine where myself and I was working very, very closely with Monique Suren from WeTransfer back then at the beginning. We were like, hey, we don't, I don't think this thing is going to go away. Like, I don't think we're going to be back in the office next month. And we were already kind of gaining momentum and really liking our meetups and taking so much out of that. And suddenly we were all faced with very new and very similar challenges. Like, what is this thing? And now suddenly we have to motivate our employees and we need to do engagement campaigns because everyone's at home and like the world turned upside down and <laughs> everything was thrown out the window and we were like now it's really when I'm I could really use some power brain from others and we started meeting offline the first sessions we've done were to talk about our community because we were turning people away from our LinkedIn group if you believe that before COVID so people were joining us and I would look at their profile and be like well you live in Vienna we're meeting in Amsterdam I'm sorry that's not the community for you wild when I think about it now right and so after COVID people started joining us from all over the world and we were like oh this is getting big like it's a hundred people here why are they here you start like not knowing everyone it's like this is not a working group anymore so then what is it 
And so the first sessions, there were actually workshops and we talked about what is this community actually and for whom is it for and what will we do and who will do what and all that good stuff. And that was really the setting up, what set up the, I don't know, I guess the foundation for everything that l and Shakers is today, which is a global community for, we're about 5,000, over 5,000 L&D professionals from all over the world. And we have a big palette of, let's just say, learning experiences that we create for each other. And some are online, the majority of them, but we have started going back to local hubs in major cities that are run by L&D Shakers. So we have that offline component as well, which is flourishing really beautifully and it's great to see. Mm. Have you seen that the request for face-to-face elements ramping up recently? Because that's definitely something that I'm seeing in communities in which I'm in is that request for, or the, or almost the need for in-person connection. Yes. It started, so after COVID restrictions went a bit loose, it started really fast. Like, And actually, that's why we went back to local hubs. Someone wrote me a message one day and said, hey, it looks like we're able to start getting together in small groups again. Do we want to start organizing things offline in Amsterdam? Uh, so he was a, a member that was living in Amsterdam. And I said, well, yes, I would love that, but I can't lead that. So it's yours if you want to. I mean, I'm happy to brainstorm and see how we kick it off and what do we do with it. Uh, so then we give it the local hub name and then he was the kind of local hub lead and we talked about it. The moment we put that out immediately, I don't know, five other people raised their hands. Let's do one in Sao Paulo. Let's do one in Berlin. Let's do one in London and so on. And they're going strong right now. I think there are people that are ex- we're exploring probably five new ones. We've got 10 at the moment. And we celebrated our first fourth birthday this month and in those in the feedback kind of wish list for the community this was the biggest wish from people we want to meet offline and there's talk about oh, let's do a conference like all of these big dreams and travel and see each other and yeah so definitely for sure people want to get back to hugging and being in the same room yeah, and I guess bouncing off the energy of others as well. And I guess how important was it for you as a community creator to empower people within your community to say, actually, I want to organize something and kind of I want to go off here and do something. Was there any element of hesitancy around what that vision for LND Shakers could be and allowing people to do that? Or were you completely okay with that kind of freedom? Completely okay. <laughs> so the scale of the community right now kind of creeped on us or sneaked on us um i don't know if this would have been the plan initially if i would have been so courageous or bold to say yes let's do this global community around the world and (laughs) i i don't know i probably would have been scared but because we started really small and then we kind of just went with the flow and we all saw this as a it was just a side project it was something fun it was we we didn't take it very seriously it was about us because it was about us and it's themed it came from a very real need that i had to meet other people that speak my language and learn from them and hopefully add something to them it was very easy to start to build in this distributed way and 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 invite people actually to take ownership and make the community their own because it was coming on top of our jobs so we were doing this like on top and in the morning and in the evening and in the weekends and whatnot people were really excited at the idea and they were seeing value and 
they kept on coming with ideas. So every time they kept on, oh, let's do this event. Maybe we should do a yearly conference or maybe an unconference or maybe we should have a podcast or whatever. I was like, okay, yes, I'm all for it, but who is going to do it? So the constantly when the ideas came, we were like, who wants to do it? That was the next, the second question that we would ask because we literally we didn't have the resources. So that was the only way to start creating these learning opportunities for ourselves is to actually do them. Like everyone would take a piece of that. The struggle there was though, I didn't have a problem with people using the space to learn. That was the purpose of it. I was using it to learn and learn by doing and so on. So it was like, yeah, I mean, that's why we're doing this thing. <laughs> I kept on telling people, this is not mine. And I don't want to be the one taking decisions. I want to be part of this as much as you are. Yes, I was the one raising the hand or initiating or whatever, but that doesn't mean anything now because we can only advance and learn if we are truly putting all of our brains together. And so I kept on pushing back on that, like me taking all decisions or people looking at me all the time what, what, what do you think Anna Maria what should we do it's like I don't know I mean my opinion is this but like what's your opinion because probably we're going to land on something much better than what I had in mind so we started doing that but the struggle there was not the you know when you set out to do something our brains create a vision of that something so and inevitably because we're different my vision of anything will be different than yours and sometimes I would look at things and be like, oh, I would have done that differently, whether that's an event or a visual that someone was doing or a Slack message thing. I was like, oh, I, picked, I would have picked different words or oh, that's not quite centered, like all of these very detailed, stupid things, you know, I would go and like, I would try to, hey, could you please change that? Or would you mind like looking back at that? And I had someone come back to me at one time and said, Hey, you, you know, you told me that this is my project. I can make it my own. And it's like, and now every second day I see a message from you telling me to change something. And, and that's something it's a color or it's a font or it's whatever, you know? And then he said, either, either it's mine and I run with it or it's yours and you shape it according to your vision. If you feel so strongly about these things. And then I realized like, oh no, I can't really take this on. <laughs> like, I can't, so it's yours, hands off. So that was a big, important lesson. And that, I guess, it's truly when we embrace this, okay, it's not just saying it's yours, run with it, but actually really owning and, and believing and to a great extent trusting that everyone has, everyone goes on their journey, but they have the resources, the capabilities, the expertise, the drive, the passion to lead a project to completion. The path might look different. And I would have probably chose to go a different path, a different strategy, a different way. But if the project does what it's supposed to be doing, so if it reaches the goal, it doesn't matter how we get there because it will look different all the time. So I was like, yeah. If you give this to 10 people, they will drive this project in 10 different ways. If they get to the same result, is that a good thing? Yes. So let go, Anna Maria, let go. <laughs> really insightful feedback, though. Thank you for sharing that, because it's really insightful into how receptive you are as an individual to others' feedback. And then saying, actually, no, I can let go of this. Because I imagine if it was something maybe more important about maybe something that was maybe I don't know, causing a disruption within the group, for example, that is something that you would take control of. But allowing people that freedom to look for the end goal and, and reach it in the way that they would, probably within the parameters that you 
kind of set up within L&D shakers. But yeah, there's that element of actually I need to yeah let go, let control over, give it to someone else and see what happens. And I imagine there's an element of fear that comes with that potentially sometimes as well when it's something that you feel so strongly about and want to do so well in. But I guess taking a, a slight step back, when you first started talking there, you spoke about how you'd identified a problem that you had seen and you had felt within the industry that you wanted to be connected to people. And then that you'd also done a kind of a reset at the beginning of the community formation to say, well, what is this? What does it mean to you? And how can we serve you as a community and I imagine when you did that because it was at those beginning stages of COVID that the group was probably still relatively small within the hundreds now you're at that kind of thousand mark five thousand people strong how often do you spend time re-evaluating what your mission is or what your focus areas are or is it something that now evolves more naturally the size of the group we refined the mission and vision and purpose with the core team two years ago, a year ago, when we worked with Lula Duaji, part of Alan Shakers, was a consultant and a great strategist. So he led the core team through a series of workshops and we talked about the ex- that thing, like, okay, let's go back to drawing board. Who are we? What is our mission? Let's refine that, etc. Words have changed and probably it's a bit more like more clearer, more, you know, snappier, but in essence, the mission or the purpose of why we're coming together, it, it hasn't really changed. What changes and what we keep on experimenting is the formats, like the, the, the what. We haven't changed the who and we haven't changed the why. That's kind of very, pretty stable. How we do things, those are changing very often. We have formats and things that are tried and tested, especially our events. We have five types of events. And they all had different formats and they come in different purposes and they're led by different people. And so that is running really smoothly. But on top of that, we experiment with different projects, if you like. And a lot of experiments we've done with async learning as well. How do you surface kind of exchange or sharing resources or bouncing off ideas around the challenge or a topic in Slack or on LinkedIn? And we've experimented with different things we always give them a fair chance but if in a month or month and a half we see like oh this is really not like we're it feels like we're pushing something that no one needs we just park stuff so in terms of that i think it's very organic we constantly no matter if it's the onboarding message if it's all our materials the website i like that to call it like that our our little notion page <laughs> the whole discourse like everything about lady shakers tells you or indicates that you can run things here if they're relevant to lnds so very often people will come with ideas i would come with ideas but others will come with ideas as well and they would reach out and they would say i want to test out a series of three workshops where we learn about this and that what can i do or i am doing a research and i would like to involve at the shakers or i'm collaborating with a book and i would love to tap into this so everyone kind of has their own thing for us as long as it's relevant in terms of the topic for for us as a group as well as it comes from a good place, like it's not you pushing an agenda or you promoting something or so it's a win-win. You get something, we take something. As long as those two conditions are met, it's a yes by default with the condition that you run with it, with, with the support from anyone in the core team, but you own that part. There's not a lot of strategy around that. 
We do capture feedback though in our welcome form. We are asking people two questions. The first is, what challenges are you facing right now? What are you working on that's challenging you? The second one is, what should happen in this community for it to become your go-to place for learning and development? That's it. And that gives us a lot of input. So we look at that probably once a year, once every six months. We pull the data out, we collect the teams, and then we share it with the core team so they can look out for sourcing events or the expertise to kind of tackle those. Or we look at industry trends. Oh, it's AI. So I'm like, okay, who's really like good at talking about this and kind of knows something? Let's invite them in. So it's quite spontaneous, I guess. But no, the foundation is still the same. We just play around with how that manifests, I guess. Yeah, and really interesting that you're kind of so responsive to people coming to you with ideas for things that they want to run as well. And, and you mentioned the word experiment or experimentation there a couple of times, which is, I think, really refreshing. I get really excited when I hear people talk about experimentation because it's, it is exactly that, that you don't necessarily know how a whole community of people are going to respond to something. So how do you then, you know, just try it out and think, actually, no, this might not work. Is there an element of fear within you for stuff like that? Or do you just fully embrace that kind of approach? Yeah. I mean, we don't have a strategy. We don't have managers. We don't have a cease. Like we can do whatever we want. And I'm not, I'm not afraid of things because if, if anything, I I would love this platform to be a place where we can all come with our wild ideas and test them out. And because if it works, it already shakes us and you're, and you're learning how you're launching it and implementing and the marketing around that and you're giving it a fair chance. And when is it okay to kind of let go because it's not working? Like when do you, how, how far do you, like, what is that fair chance? Is it a month, two months, three months? How do, so everyone kind of comes with there. I want people to have that experience because that's the learning that's how you learn and so if it works in any shakers chances are that you're going to get a confidence boost and be like i'm going to either take this as it is and play with it like implement it in my company or i'm going to adapt it to the context and like run with it but suddenly it becomes this arena or this playground or the sandbox where you can do things and if it flops it's absolutely like no one cares no one would look at things and say, oh that didn't work out like it's just, we take, and, and we're so open about that. Like we're, hey, we're testing this out. Let's see what it is. Oops, three months later, it looks like this doesn't get any traction. So this is sparked for now until we, you know, someone wants to give it another try and turn things around. So it's just so, <laughs> it's really refreshing because it has, it's so different than how we're normally working in corporates like with our managers and our to-dos and strategies and like fit things into boxes I'm like there's no box here like you can just go wild <laughs> it's really great that people have that kind of playground almost to say like this is mm -hmm. I want to try this out I want to see how you respond and then kind of taking those lessons back into their organizations but is there a lesson in that for how people within their own organizations can set up communities to help with that either the idea of experimentation or creating safe spaces for learning to happen in that are then extended into other areas of the business. Have you seen any maybe practical examples of that happening or heard anyone talking about that? Yes. So when I kind of stumbled into this world of community building and then two years ago, a little over two years ago, I also made this my job at Butter. So I'm also now building communities and someone pays me to do that. 
when I made that switch and I was like, oh, this is not a game anymore. Like, that's not my job. And that's my title. So I was like, I really have to go and like take some courses, talk to some people because I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> They're going to see that I'm a fraud. So I immediately went and I was like, where can I learn? And obviously I, I bought her, it's a community for users, like external, it's a mixed community, but it's external facing for customers, users, clients. And I was able to find just so much knowledge out there. So everything has to do with communities externally, user community, uh, there's courses, there are videos, there's recording of past events, there's communities of community builders and so on. Things look so different when we're talking about building communities internally within companies. At first I thought, oh, maybe that's not a thing yet. You know, like I would love to, and I don't understand why we don't build more, but maybe that's not, we're not ready yet a company or whatever. And that's not true. There are people who do build them or play around with them. Some, they're not even calling them communities. They have different names, but they have those experimental spaces, sharing spaces. I'm now kind of, I have this newfound mission to find those people and have them share how that journey looked like for them because it's so different to build it externally versus internally. Some things are similar, but then many, many things are different. And probably for me, the biggest, the most challenging one is the fact that you're building. So a community is a microculture. In order for it to work and flourish and for you to have that experimental and people raise their hands and like truly making it that juicy space where you're not afraid to fail and you can raise your hand and, you know, that like the psychological safety and the way you are supposed to be kind of caught or supported is very different and very particular. And so because you have this very special setting or microculture and they behave very differently and they're almost like a living organism, it fun they function very differently than your typical learning solutions that we put out there. Even the ones that are very human centered, there's still this element of someone, L&D, like someone from the department steering it, and you're inviting people in, but you're still creating something for them or together with them. And communities are like, oh, we create all of these things together and make sense together. The challenge there is that they, you're building that microculture in already an established organizational bigger culture or learning culture with which might or might not be supportive of that microculture of the community and would rub against that. So for me, that's the biggest challenge that I see. It's a company where the hierarchical structures are really strong. People don't feel that they can put ideas for, forward. Managers want to control everything. Suddenly a community project turns into this platform where we can, you know, Again, like push an agenda or use as a communication channel or use it to get people to buy into some organizational decisions faster or like some sort of very different expectations that are not serving the community. And then, yeah, it flops and they're like, oh, it's not a thing like this community building thing. It's not something that we could use. Whereas on the other hand, if you do land into this environment that is enabling and you manage to kick it off the ground, it will snowball and it has wonderful effects for learning, no doubt, but even for process improvements and breaking down silos and collaboration and not having to reinvent the wheel all the time and costs reduction and better customer service, like you perform better in terms of like your, like your different departments or and so on. So 
it's definitely worth giving it a try. But that starting, this 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 stop, the stepping stone, the starting moments, that's quite important and quite crucial. And it, it helps to have someone higher up that understands what true community is and what is it not so that you have someone at your side to fight the good fight, I guess, when times get rough, because you will have to protect that space. Are you used to protect and fight back for something? Are you allowed to? Do you feel safe to? Because otherwise it would just, uh, it would be really hard to, to get it off, to push it off the ground. Do you think that L&D should be, L&D teams should be the ones responsible for creating communities within organisations? Because it sounds like what you're saying is that if L&D are the ones kind of pushing an agenda, it can quickly lose traction because it's, like you say, people are serving another purpose rather than the purpose of the community itself. So where do you draw the line there? Is it something L&D should be pushing for other people to initiate rather than initiating it themselves? Yes. Ideally, in an ideal world, communities, the best communities are grassroots. That means someone else in the team, in the organization, in the company comes up with an idea or like they stumbled upon it or by mistake, they somehow end up creating this recurring gatherings with people where there's not much of a plan or an agenda and it's about us coming together and sharing and they're facilitated and, and whatnot. So that's the best way. And then all we have to do is get out of the way and, and facilitate and allow and support and encourage and enable. And then with the help of that first grassroots movement, we can support or like look at that as a case study, if you like, internally, and then try to replicate get their help to compile almost like a formula, like a guidebook. What is this? And then put it out there for other folks to start their own grassroots based on departments, locations, organizational challenges. You can start a, a community of learning or of practice for many different reasons and purposes. Now, again, that's the if the culture is already there, if there's a culture of experimenting, if there's a culture where people feel like, oh, I can actually come up with an idea and run it by my manager. And he will say, sure, it's not on your job description, but go have fun with it. You know, like how many companies do we have that are like that? We do have a few, which is very refreshing and brings back faith in humanity. And I guess companies will have to go down that path sooner or later, but that doesn't happen like a lot of our companies and organizations at the moment are not like that. And so I'm thinking, what does that mean? Does that mean that there's no chance for communities to sprout if if no one takes the lead because the, the culture is rubbing against that? And that's where I'm thinking, okay, so maybe we can give it a little nudge and we can start it from L&D, but we need to be very skilled and careful. How do we do that? Because the approach is very different. So it's not, hey, here is a team's channel and this is our community for the sales department and you're all invited here, whether you want to or not. And now we are having some trainings that you didn't ask for and some sessions and um, we expect you to post something every year. <laughs> you know, like there's so many different ways this can, this can go wrong, but there are ways in which you can, and I've talked about this before and someone said, not 
I, I said, we need to Trojan horse it inside the company, you know, and someone said, not Trojan horse it, Trojan mice it, like something really small that you put there. <laughs> and, and I was, okay, let's Trojan mice this. Ways to Trojan mice a community into a company is to, for example, link it or try to nurture it around onboarding and on the boarding process or first time leaders learning journey, for example, or around the engineering department, which are working already in agile ways. They know the importance of learning. They work with scrum masters, they work with retrospectives, they work with learning from failure and so on. So they are usually very open to this idea of collaboration and sharing best practices and whatnot. So I would Trojan myself in there. And if it's working and I gather the value stories and the impact, I can then go and sell it higher up, right? So I would do a small experiment. I wouldn't even call it a community. If someone asks at best, you can say, social learning or blended learning, they will be like, yes, we want blended learning. So cool. So you can call it blended learning or social learning and they would be happy. And then the key is to build it slowly, take it step by step, because you will have to potentially at times break some expectations. There will be some resistance to change, some fear, but moving really slowly and inviting people in we're working with adults. I guess that's our plus. That's something that we can work through our advantage because if they feel that there's genuine interest there and it's like, I really trust you and I think you can do that. So let's play with it. Like I'm here to support you. But like if there, we pick the right words and we pick the right small actions of enablement, people will react to that and be like, oh, this is different, but I kind of like it. So what is this? And let's build more and more and more. And then collecting stories and impact and feedback to build a business case if you want to go upwards and say like, oh, remember that blended social learning thingy? It's actually achieving this and that. Let's roll it out or let's, you know, improve it or whatever. Take it up a notch. I love that Trojan mindset and that kind of drip feeding, almost a kind of a facilitating those microcultures to inform the macroculture within an organisation. I think people will find a lot of value in doing that, but you've touched on something really interesting there. And I guess just to round off the conversation, how do you think semantics play a part in people buying into what you're doing? Because I've heard this spoken about in, term, in relation to coaching before, that the term coaching and the word coaching can sometimes, I don't know, cause people to have a, have a, a reaction that you don't want them to. And, and that sounds like it might be similar with this idea of communities and with like, oh, communities have failed before, we're not going to try that again. So how do you shift the opinions without potentially calling it communities and do you have any observations around like the, the use of semantics in within organizations yeah i think this applies to so many other things and buzzwords and especially community it seems like it's everywhere these days that makes me really happy but at the same time it's hard to find examples of what good communities and thriving communities are actually looking like and feel like and what's the potential there. And sometimes people already have experiences and not really good experiences being part of a community or starting a community. So it gains a bad reputation here and there. And so that's why I'm thinking, is it, are we doing ourselves a disfavor by calling it a community? And it's like, do we have to? And the more people I talk to that are successfully building this internally, they don't use the word community. At best, they use the word communities of practice, specifically of practice. And the part of the practice is what they sell to the business, if you want, because the practice part, you can't contest that. 
like if my people are practicing their skills and applying and growing, it will lead to, you know, hopefully a better performance at work. So it's much more graspable for top executives to understand why do we bring people together? Like what's the purpose? And not focus so much on the community side, which is like, what is that? Is that a channel where they all have to you know, post things and no one will. And what is that? Like, what's in it for us? Why should we do that? So if we turn it and we focus on the practice, the impact, the results, the good strategies to look at what is top leadership talking about? What's the pain point now? Because I can guarantee you that it has to do with people, with the teams, for sure. And I can guarantee you that it's somehow linked to either leadership, leading, learning skills, or maybe collaboration, inefficiency of stuff, the way we work, ways of working. So if it's one of those things, you can definitely build a business case around that. And Trojan Mice, a community project, an experiment as part of like as in a solution plan and give it a try and give it a fair chance without calling it a community. And then you can call it whatever. I'm all for that, I think. I have people ask me, should I tell my stakeholders that I'm doing it or should I just do it? And then oh, <laughs> and I'm like, just do question. it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> just do it and see what comes out. And then if people like it, then you can go to your stakeholders and say like, oh, wow, I've tried this thing and look at the feedback. Like, there's no way they're going to tell you, oh, no, we don't need this. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it just takes that action in order to, to reach a different solution, doesn't it? But Anna Maria, thank you so much for sharing. There's some real nuggets of gold in there that people can really take away and hopefully action themselves in their own organisation. So I really appreciate you sharing so insightfully. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure to be here. And thank you for all your curious questions into my work. This podcast is powered by Thrive. We're a complete learning and skills platform creating modern learning solutions for modern businesses globally. Check us out.